Anne Goldstein has been an editor and the head of copy desk at New Yorker magazine. She worked for the magazine for over 40 years. She has translated works of famous Italian writers like Elena Ferrante and Paolo Pasolini. She is the editor of the complete works of Primo Levi, an Italian writer in English. She is the winner of Pen Renato Poggioli Prize and awards from the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She was the panel chair for translated fiction at the US National Book Award in 2022. In this episode, she spoke about her stint at the New Yorker, her works of translation, translator's identity and the Italian writer Marina Zar, whose Italian novel she translated into English as Distant Fathers. Thank you very much for coming over to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, to begin with, uh, you studied ancient Greek in college. Uh, I just want to understand, uh, was there any, uh, from your family side, uh, for your interest in your languages, was there any early influence? No. I mean, my first languages were actually Latin and French that I studied in, in elementary school. And I really, I really liked, um, I actually, I loved Latin. <laughs> And I like French. And, I, you know, I was good at them. There was no real family issue about it. I mean, no no family interest particular. But I just was, you know, I liked them and I was good at them. And then, um, and then I studied Greek in college, yeah. And then I, then I didn't start learning Italian until I was um, in my late 30s, actually. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a bit about it? Uh, why did you learn Italian? I was interested in Italian for a long time because I read uh, Dante, the Divine Comedy, in college. And actually, I took, there was a Dante class that I took twice because I was so taken with Dante. <laughs> okay. Um, and I always had this ambition to read Dante in Italian. And so I, um, at a certain point when I was working at The New Yorker, I uh, convinced some of my colleagues that they also wanted to read Dante. <laughs> And one of, one of them knew someone who could teach us Italian. So we had an Italian class at the office. And then we read, um, we read the whole Divine Comedy. I mean, it took us a long time, but we did it. So you enjoyed uh, Dante more in Italian or in English? No, I, I mean, you know, it's, I, of, of course, it's, it's just much more beautiful in Italian. You can't, there's no, no way you could translate everything. I mean, like all poetry, I mean, I, I, poetry in particular, I think, doesn't translate all that well. <laughs> now then, uh, how did your journey into translation uh, begin? Well, when, I, at the, when I'd been studying it, we, Italian, I guess we'd had, our class had been going for about five years, four or five years. Um, the editor of The New Yorker, Robert Gottlieb, um, received a book from the artist Saul Steinberg, who was... Um, you may, you probably know, he's, he's the person who, he's famous for the, you know, New York and then the rest of the world is little. <laughs> um, anyway, his, he had a friend named Aldo Buzzi and uh, he, he gave this book to Bob and he, who didn't really read Italian. So he gave me the book and said, can you just 
look at this because I have to say something to Saul. <laughs> so I read it. I really loved it. And I, I just, for the hell of it, I tried translating it. And then um, actually, and then it was the book was published. I mean, first it was, it was actually published in the New Yorker. It was a short, a short book. And then it was published in, as part of a book. So that's like everybody else. I mean, most people, most translators I know, they're they're start by accident <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so then how was the response for your uh, first translated work yeah it was a good there was a good response <laughs> i mean yeah pe- people liked it i mean it was very it's a very particular kind of um work because it's not it's really about um it's very literary and it's kind of about the italian um concept of Russia, the relationship between Italia, between Italy and Russia, which is actually very close or that you know has been but um but that's it was really kind of a meditation on that so it wasn't I mean I don't think that you know it was like zillions of people read it but um but it's quite a it's a really wonderful book I don't know if you've read it and and it's very well the Chekhov and Sandrio part is it's it, the book itself has some other stuff in it too but um Aldo Muzzi was a very particular kind of writer now you had a very long stint at the new yorker magazine both as a head of the copy desk and also as a senior editor uh, spanning for almost uh, five decades i guess four and a half decades yeah Yeah. i yeah (laughs) can you share some insights into these roles and uh, uh can you narrate some interesting experiences you had with famous writers and yeah, I mean, you know, people, well, I guess I'll start with just the magazine itself. I mean, I wasn't really, the, I was the head of the department from about 1987 when the editors changed. Um, but, um, you know, copy editing was re- was really important at The New Yorker. And there was a very complex process of fact-checking and copy editing Um and I'm not I'm not going to go into it in detail, but anyway, that was so the so copy was important, um, which it you know seems to be not to sound like an old crabby old lady, but it seems to be less and less important to everybody. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about the New Yorker. I'm just saying in general. Um, but um, anyway, uh, I, I mean I don't you know I did edit John Updike one I edited John Updike's book reviews for a while for well quite a few years i guess and the thing about john updike is that and and all great writers is that they really like editing they're not they don't see it as um adversarial and sometimes um young writers do see they see that you know it's like you're the teacher and you're correcting them when in fact the idea is that um that you're really trying to help them to be themselves as as far as possible on the page um, and, and Updike was always very appreciative of, um, you know, of queries, of suggestions. You know, even if he didn't agree, he was he appreciated that. Um, well, the level of attention in a way. I mean, I, I think that leads into the relationship between editing or copy editing and translation. Yeah, because um, translation requires a similar kind of. Um, I don't know, you could say devotion to the writer or devotion to the prose um, and, you know, attention to the attention to detail, attention to the words 
And the the goal of expressing that right or, or letting that writer express him or herself as um, well as possible in English and as close to their and maintaining that voice as much as you can. Um, so, yeah. In one of your interviews, uh, um, I read about your experience with Ved Mehta. Uh, well, when I came, to, when I first came to the New Yorker in the, actually, I guess it was when Ved first, when Ved came to the New Yorker, in, in case people don't know, he was blind, but he was, he was a writer and he was blind and he had really done amazing things. I mean, he had come from India and um, gone to the blind school on his own. He, he really, it was incredible. Anyway, but he, he, I guess he was a friend of, um, so, well, somehow he was connect, He was introduced to Mr. Sean and hired as a writer. And the New Yorker always had hired an assistant for him uh, who would, and his method of writing was that he would, he, he well, the work, book I worked on with him, with him was a uh, biography of, of Gandhi or a book about Gandhi. And he, um, so he had read various things and, and he would have people, well, he had read, people read to him. He had people reading to him all the time. And then, you know, if there was something he wanted to make notes of, I guess they would copy it down. Um, yeah, I guess we, that's what we did. Anyway, then he was, then he, when he wrote, he would say a sentence, you would write down the sentence in longhand. This is way before computers. Um, he would, um, I sound so primitive, <laughs> Um, and then he would, you know, you'd read it back to him and he would either say, okay, let's go on. Or he would, you know, re revise it or something. So it was a pretty laborious process. And um, he wore out a lot of people <laughs> because, he, I mean, you know, for, with reason, he was, he was quite difficult to work with um, because he was very, he was very focused. He didn't like to have any other sound. Like if you threw a piece of paper in the wastebasket, he could hear that and he would say, don't do that or whatever. Anyway, that was, it was a, it was very intense kind of work, but it was um, kind of amazing. Yeah. Okay. Now as the chief of editor for a New Yorker, uh, you must have had a very demanding workload, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did you find time for translation? I, I, to tell you the truth, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I used to work, I, I worked on, um, I worked at night, at, at night when I came home or, or in, or actually I look, worked more in the early morning and, um, before work. And then I also, um, worked on weekends and then I, I would take a month's vacation every year and go to Italy and work in Italy. <laughs> and my boss was agreeable, fortunately, to that. <laughs> okay. Now, do you believe that, uh, editing the work of others? had any impact on how you approached translation? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, as I said, that the, the idea of um, of getting the writer to, of, of you yourself transferring the writer's voice into another language, um, I think that it's, it's similar to, trans, to, to making the writer's voice better in English or clearer in English. And, um, and it's also, you know, it's a very, it is kind of a painstaking thing because you have to consider every word. And, you know, if you're editing something, you, you do have to consider every word as well. So, and I, I just think the whole, the, um, the discipline of editing, uh, 
And the invisibility of editing is similar to that of the translator. You know, if you're if you're an editor, you're used to to being invisible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can discuss this later. You know, the 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 greater visibility of translators, perhaps now. But you know, you don't go into it because you want your name on a you know in lights kind of. But uh, as an editor, uh, you must have had fights with uh, authors, right? Same is with uh, <laughs> authors while you are translating. Yeah, it's a negotiation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I try to avoid real fights. <laughs> okay. Um, see, in the last four and a half decades or so, could you see any changes in the way you approach translations, either in terms of philosophy, workflow, or craft? Well, the biggest change is when I started. Yes, there were computers, but there was not um, Google. There was not the access to so much information right. as there is now, which makes makes it a lot easier. I mean, like there are endless dictionaries. There's so many dictionaries online, and there's so many other sources of things. You know, I mean, when you're translating, you have to look up a lot of things. There's a lot of things, not just words that you have to look up, but cultural, um, you know, there's reference. There's all kinds of references, historical references. Um, cultural references, um, food reference, I mean, everything, every possible type of reference. And so it's really um, helpful to have a, um, to have a computer <laughs> to, to be able to look these things up. Not that you always find them, but, but you, you know, there's, um, uh, there's just um, things like Google street view, you know, all these things are really, are really useful that, that certainly didn't exist when I started. So when you are translating uh, uh, the fiction, would you like to have a feel of the place too? You want to see how it is? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it, it really helps. I mean, you know, like it's the best thing is to, is to actually go to, to see a place, you know, in person, but if you can't, if you can't do that, you can look at pictures of it. Right. You can look at maps. I mean, I do, I spend a lot of time looking at maps. <laughs> um, you know, there's just a lot of there. You have more options now, but but the best thing is to be in a place um, or to look at. I mean, I've translated a lot somehow a lot of books about that have Rome as a as a background or as a setting, and I've always made it made it a um, project really to see all the places that are in the books that I'm working on. I mean, as far as they still exist. Right. Right. Um, and I just find it really, really helpful, even if it's not literally helpful, even if it's not like, you know, oh, well, this is the right color. This is the right word. Just to have a feeling of the place. Um, like there's this the book that's coming out. There's this book coming out in the fall called The City of the Living. Wait, what is it called? Yeah, City of the Living by a writer called Nicola La Gioia. Right. And it's about a murder, and the murder takes place in this suburb of Rome called Colatino. So I went to go, <laughs> I went to, to this place just so I could, you know, see the the building and the this, and, and just get a sense of the atmosphere of the neighborhood. And I, I just found that so helpful. I believe you know so. more about those places than the author himself or herself. <laughs> well, probably not, but no. Now that you are uh, full-time into translation, mm -hmm. what is your typical workday like? 
Oh, it's very, it's kind of varied, but my goal of a work, typical work day is to work. <laughs> I'm usually working on more than one thing at once, which isn't sometimes is good and sometimes isn't good. Why is that? Why do you take up uh, two, three projects at a time? I don't know. I, because I'm, <laughs> it's just, you know, things, I, I agree to do projects and then something takes longer or something inter, intervenes. And so I just end up having usually more than one thing or there, um, you know, when, when, for example, when I was working on Primo Levi, that was such a long-term project that it was possible to be also doing something else. Um, or I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it was, if I should have, but I did. <laughs> and I actually find that it's, it's kind of useful to have, um, two different kinds of Italian in my head because sometimes you just, it just helps you understand something, you know, one, something you read in one book helps you understand something in the other book, like a word or a phrase or, you know, many things. So I, that's my justification. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, now, when it comes to evaluating translations, you have been a judge on several panels uh, to select the best translated works. Oh, yeah. Uh, how do you evaluate a particular translation? Well, I mean, I really, it, it's, it's, you can't really divide it from judging a good book. <laughs> I mean, you can, but um, it's, it's hard because of course, when you're judging a contest, you're not, you're judging books from languages that you don't necessarily know. And even with the ones you know, you're not looking at the original, um, at least in the ones that, I, I mean, some, some contests are different, but in the ones that the award type of awards that I've judged, which is only two, I think, two or three, um, you're, you're just looking at, um, at the, at the English version. And, you know, if it's sometimes you can tell if the translation is a little sloppy or um, well, you can tell or you can tell that it reads really well in English. Some sometimes you can see, oh, yeah, I can see even if you don't know the language, you can say, oh, you know, you can see how a translator might have solved something. Um, even if you don't exactly know, you say oh, this is a really good, you know, way to do this. <laughs> um, so but really you're judging a book the whole thing, the style, the language, um, the writing, the style. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a little bit, I guess it's a little bit tricky. <laughs> okay. Even recently, uh, you were the panel chair for uh, translated fiction at the U.S. Uh, National Book Award yeah. in 2022. Right. Yeah. So in the last four and a half decades that you are in the field of translation, have you observed any changes uh, in terms of craft, reach and uh, recognition for the translator? Well, I, I think in the in the last um, I mean, you know, I don't really I'm not I'm not somebody who really looks at the overview of things. <laughs> but um, but in the past few years, you know, there's been a lot. Even though the numbers are the same, I, I believe the numbers of translated, the percentage of translated books, at least in America, are the same. And maybe in Great Britain, I don't know. Um, I think that there's been greater visibility to translation, given to translations and actually to translators. I mean, there's a big, um, Jennifer Croft, the translator of um, Olga Tokarczuk, has this 
this has a real campaign to have translator names on the covers. Many publishers won't do it. They just won't do it. Even today? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay. even today. Yeah, not naming any names, but <laughs> a lot of people have, they just have that, that's just their policy and they don't want to change it. I mean, I think, I think gradually it, it's, it, they are, it is changing the whole, the concept that the translator shouldn't be on the cover and more translators are on the covers. Um, I mean, their name is on the cover, but, but just in general, the, um, I think there's a more attention is being paid to translated works and many more languages are being translated. I think, um, like not just, I mean, to, just to take India, not just Hindi, but like tons of smaller language groups are being translated. And I think it's, it's really great that, um, that there's all uh, more African languages. Um, so um, in that way, I think that there's been a change. What is your personal take on this uh, recognition for the translator? I think translators should be recognized. I, I do. I, I think for me, the thing that um, sometimes annoys me, you know, when a translated book is reviewed, um, or not, re not annoys, but you know, it, I notice this when a translated book is reviewed and the, reviewer quotes big chunks of of the of the from the book big chunk you know like a paragraph or more than that or phrase whatever from the book and they talk about the style of the writer rather than mentioning of course this is the <laughs> work of the translator not of the writer you know that's that's unfortunate i think that that they don't i mean it doesn't matter but it's because you know you're you want the book to be I guess, well, if they're saying something good, you want the book to be praised. <laughs> but, um, but I think that, that there's not, you know, it's just like a, a blind spot of some sort. But I think the whole issue of reviewing translations is, is complicated because, you know, there's arguments that only a person who knows the original language should do it. And there are arguments that no, nobody, the person, uh, person who knows the original language shouldn't do it. Um, there's a famous, um, editor, I don't know if you know her, of um, called Barbara Epler uh, at New Directions. She doesn't know any other language, and yet she's been editing translations, you know, so successfully for years. So there's, you know, and she's, she feels that that's helpful to her, not to know the other languages. I mean, the languages she's... So, it, yeah, it can work both ways. How do you choose a book for translation? Well, for me, in my case, I've almost always been asked by by a publisher. I haven't really chosen that many. I don't think I've chosen um, really, maybe, maybe, well, one book that I did read on my own and wanted to translate, the publisher had also, you know, we were a meeting of minds about this book. So, so really I, I've been mostly had, you know, been asked by publishers. There is, a, you know, any spare time for you? Uh, do you do anything to enhance your uh, translation skills? Well, I think that um, reading is really the best way. I mean, reading in English. And I used to always, um, I don't know, I haven't done it lately. Well, yeah, actually, actually I have. Um, when I go, I usually spend a, um, a month or so in Italy a year, every year. Um, well, before the pandemic, I spent more time, but I'm, I'm working up to it again. But I always used to, when I, I would go to Italy and work, and um, I always used to bring some, you know, like a 19th century English novel or, or some book that was 
of, of an English prose style that I liked, just so I would have English in my ear while I was working, you know, because you get confused <laughs> sometimes. So, um, so I do think it's good to read. I mean, I, it's good to read other books in Italian, but it's also good to read, be reading something in English that's well written. Books that you have translated. Uh, one of them is, of course, the prestigious project uh, where you won Guggenheim Fellowship for translating Primo Levi. Uh, can you provide more details about uh, this fellowship project uh, to translate uh, Primo Levi? Yeah. Um, well, the fellowship was really a byproduct, <laughs> but um, there was an editor at the publishing house, um, Norton, um, now, well, Norton Liverite called um, Robert Weil, and he had the vision, the idea of publishing all of Primo Levi in English. And um, because because his books had been, most of his books were translated, but not everything. And uh, they were, but they were very scattered. They were different translators. They were different publishers. Um, and um, he thought that, that they should all be to, put together. And originally he had the, he, he spent five years getting the English rights. So you can imagine how scattered they were. Um, and um, originally we were going to just put together the existing translations. At least we would, there would, you know, be one volume with all, or actually as it turned out, three volumes with all the works. But, but when I started reading them, they were so, um, they were so varied. It didn't really make sense that if we're going to do this project, we really should just retranslate everything. Um, so we did get permission to retranslate everything except for, um, if this is a man, which is the first, you know, the first major book, Sequestoy and Momo, which is called in English more, usually it's called survival in Auschwitz. We're trying to get away from that. <laughs> um, so, so we did that. I mean, it was a bit of a struggle, <laughs> but, um, and this project went on for like 11 years, I think, before it was oh 10, or, 10 or 11 years. Well, it was a lot of books. And there were different, there were a lot of, there were different translators. Um, it was a little bit complicated. And then we had, um, I worked a lot with the Primo Levi Center in Torino, in Turin. They were really helpful. And they, they have a scholar, um, Domenico Scarpa, and he, he, he did the notes um, and he helped with other questions and things. So, you know, it's kind of a, um, it's, it's kind of a great scholarly <laughs> volume. I mean, semi-scholarly, it's not meant to be academic. Yeah. So that, that was a, that was quite an operation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, recently I got this book, the periodic table, just a few, a few days ago. No, I read some of the chapters. Uh, it is, uh, full of uh, you know chemistry terminology a lot of uh, it talks about elements and it compares with the personality and all that yeah how did you manage that you this technical terms how did you manage uh, the translation well he i mean levy was a scientist obviously and so there was a science actually um you know by again the internet was very helpful but um, but also, you know, I had a friend who was a scientist, and I could check things with, with him. And you know, some stuff. I don't know. We just, I guess, I probably no. I mean, you, you can look up a lot of things, and um, 
and it was possible. I, I mean, it was, it was, it's hard because you want to, you don't want to use a term that people wouldn't, that scientists, sometimes the dictionary, of course, isn't, doesn't always give you the word the, the, that's used. It gives you a definition, but it's not really the, or a word that's not common. Also, slight PS, most Italian English dictionaries are British. So you always have to, <laughs> you have to make it into, make them into American. <laughs> there were about uh, nine translators uh, working in that project. Yeah, I forget eight or nine. Yeah. Eight, yeah. And uh, how was uh, the experience of editing the other translators work? Well, I think it was, it was actually pretty smooth. I mean, most of them were people that I knew and we all, we got along and, and they knew that I was trying to, I mean, they, they, of course, everybody, every book wasn't going to sound the same, but I wanted to have at least some kind of ground rules and some kind of, um, uh, some kind of tone that was similar or style, tone and style that were, that were similar between the books. And I think that that sort of worked out. Well, obviously I edited all of them. I read them. I, I checked them against the original. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, I tried. Um, so I think it went, it went pretty well. Now we will come to Elena Ferranti's works. Oh, yes. The first book that you translated was The Days of Abandonment. Yeah. How did you come to translate it? Uh, well, the the um, publisher Europa Editions that was the first book that they published, and they, the Europa is the um, is the child. Of the parent company is a is a an Italian publisher called Edizioni AO, and they decided to um, the owner Sandro Ferri and Sandro um, decided to start publishing. As to start an English language publishing house. And the first book that they were going to publish was The Days of Abandonment, which they had published in Italian. And um, they, <laughs> they had a, a little contest. <laughs> okay. And they had like five translators do a sample. Oh. They just got my name, I think, from the Penn website. Um, and I, I, I won that contest. <laughs> I, I discovered some of the people who didn't win the contest are close friends of mine. <laughs> but that, that was really, it was really a chance, uh, um, sort of, again, you know, kind of accidental. But once I started, um, I just kept going with Elena Ferrante. Can you describe the writer, Elena Ferranti both as a reader and a translator? Yeah, but I don't, I mean, it's, it's really hard to say what you are as a reader, because <laughs> as a translator, you're reading in such a different way, you know. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I have an idea of Elena Ferrante as the, as the writer of her books, you know, even though I don't have an idea of her as a person. I mean, to me, the person is the writer of the books. So it's in the story and the language and the, um, um, what she writes about, um, I don't know. I think, I, I don't know really how to answer that, I guess. No, in terms of style, you must have read a lot of other writers too, not only in Italian, even in English and all. How do you compare yeah. her style of writing and the themes that uh, she chooses? How do you, what do you think of her as a writer? Well, I I think she's a great writer. I mean, I think that, that she, um, 
I think that her uh, her style matches what she's doing in a way. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, she's talking about, obviously, she's talking about women's emotions. She's talking about men, too. But she's talking about women, basically, women in relation to all their relationships. I mean, women and mothers, women and daughters, uh, I'm, women and sons, women and husbands, lovers, whatever. Uh, and, and then her, her style of writing is, is kind of, she kind of piles things on. Um, you know, the sentences are kind of famously run on sentences. <laughs> I, I, you know, I tried to preserve some of that, but English doesn't really like run on sentences. So, you know, I had to stop them here and there. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, she, she's really, uh, has, um, she, she sort of digs into the experience of women in the world, uh, women in, women in all these different situations. And she goes, she goes into the things that are not even that nice. I mean, you know, that are pretty, uh, you know, that we don't like to think about in ourselves. (laughs) And, I think that's, um, you know, not so usual. Now, the Neapolitan series uh, has sold more than a million copies. Uh Uh-huh. As a literary work, what do you attribute its uh, success to? Well, I think it's, you know, I'm sort of touching on that um, before, that um, there's something about the way she writes about relationships and and including one's relationship to oneself, <laughs> um, that kind of struck a chord with a lot of people. I mean, mostly women, but not only women, that, you know, people yeah. recognized themselves in, obviously, you know, not everybody, we didn't all grow up in Naples, <laughs> in, in a poor neighborhood in Naples in the 1950s and 60s, and 70s and right. 80s and 90s. But, but, uh, but I think that a lot of the emotional situations that she describes are familiar to people. I once went to this, um, uh, get, I guess, gave a, not didn't give a talk, but went, went to a book club meeting. And the book club was the UN, United Nations Book Club. And there were women from all over the world. And it was amazing. They had all read this book and they had all, you know, they had all related to it. It was, it was mostly UN um, people who were you know, UN wives, basically. Uh, but, um, but they all, or, or maybe even some people, or people who work there, I don't know. But, but they really, uh, it was so international, and they all had, had, had some, uh, had felt an emotional connection to these books. So I think that's, you know, that sort of says something about it. But I, I don't know, it's hard to, it's hard to know. You know, there's something about the combination of her you know, they're very, she's, she says in an interview, I think in the Paris Review, um, she said she uses every, all kind, every kind of writing that she needs or that she wants, you know, and, and so, you know, there's a lot of plot, there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of, uh, there's a bit of soul searching, <laughs> there's a lot of um, trouble, <laughs> mistakes, Um you know, so she, so I think that um, all, all that goes into the fact that to making them, um, making, making people want to read them. She is an anonymous writer so far. Yeah. Till now. 
how do you collaborate with her while translating her books how do you communicate with her if you choose to well the the thing is that um i've worked with a lot of worked with in quotes a lot of dead writers so <laughs> i'm kind of used, i'm kind of used to the absent writer i mean i don't right. you know really my experience is much more not working with a writer than with than working with a writer right. um with her if if i have had questions i write the editors are the people of um edizioni eo in rome are the people that are in touch with her so if i have questions i write to them and they write to her and then they let me know it's a little cumbersome but there's not you know it, it works pretty well the next one is a hypothetical question if you were to meet elena peranti in person what might happen i i have no idea i would be So um I think I would be so in awe of her that I wouldn't be able to say a word and I'd be worried about whether my Italian was correct. <laughs> <laughs> Now we will come to your uh, recent book that you translated ma'am The Distant Fathers. Mhm. It's a memoir of an Italian writer uh, Marina Zar. Yeah. Yes. Uh, could you please introduce uh, Distant Fathers and explain what particular aspect of this book uh, led you to take up its translation well i again i was asked by the the editor um of new vessel um he yeah he got he acquired the book he was there was he heard about it and i i don't i forgot how oh yes i know it. he heard about it anyway he and he wanted to publish it and he asked me to translate it and you know i she she seemed it seemed interesting so i said yes and it is it's kind of an amazing book i i think she's a wonderful writer and i don't think she's very um that book didn't really get a lot of attention and there's also a sequel to it called return to latvia which is also really interesting um but she it's a memoir but it's very um it's almost like stream of consciousness but it's a very contained stream of consciousness the the first part there's three parts the first part is really about her childhood the second part is about her adolescence and the third part is about her being a grown adult but um she's an interesting character because her father was a latvian russian jew and her mother was um piedmontese but she was a waldensian which is a protestant basically protestants uh sect in in not sect they're protestants who live in in the piedmont area of italy um so which is unusual she spent her first 10 years in riga Then her parents had a very acrimonious divorce and her mother took her and her daughter to um I mean her and her sister sort of stole them away and they and they grew up with their grandmother in Italy. So that's that was sort of her background. And interestingly the mother of Zar uh, is uh, Clara Coison. She's a translator too. Yeah, she was a translator from Russian into Italian I believe. in uh, distant fathers uh, the themes of childhood and adolescence is present so similar to elena ferranti's novels in some way yeah how do you compare their writing styles in this context well i would say that um distant fathers is more of a kind of stream of consciousness as i said it's not it's not like literally stream of consciousness but it's kind of stream of consciousness one thing leads to another um and it's not necessarily chronological although it's 
once you've, it's very hard. It's sort of a book that you don't really understand until you get to the end. <laughs> and then you want to read it again. <laughs> um, but, um, but I mean that like the first, in the first section, it's, it's sort of jumps back and forth, but basically all within her childhood. Whereas although Ferrante does play around with chronology a bit, especially in the beginning, um, in the first novel of the Neapol the first Neapolitan novel, it's pretty, it's also kind of straightforward. The story is straightforward, much more straightforward than, um, than in Jar. You sort of have to work things out a little bit in Marina Jar. Uh, and it's, it's just a more, uh, kind of a dreamier kind of writing, I think I would say. I don't know. Yeah, it's, I read the book. I read the book, actually. Recently, I read the book before the interview. <laughs> yeah, a couple of days ago. Did you like it? Yeah, I liked it. Did you like it? Yeah, yeah, I liked it, yes. Yes. Yeah, it's not, it's not an easy book to read. Stream of consciousness books, uh, I believe it's always like that, for me at least. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the prose and the way she, you know, you, I would say you describe certain things. It's really beautiful. It's really worked out well in the translation. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, the other book is about, the, the one that came out after that, Return to Latvia, is about her father, who was killed by the Nazis. It's also, uh, of, it's different. It's it's quite different, but I, I also like that. Um, it's also very, I mean, it's about the Holocaust, but it's it's good. It's good. In fact, you translated uh, other memoir, that is Jumpa uh, Larry's uh, in other words. Yeah, that was a very interesting project. Yeah, could you share uh, your experience with that particular project? Well, you know, first of all, I was surprised by it. <laughs> I thought, why doesn't, you know, I thought she should um, maybe translate her own book. No, I, not, I don't mean it in that way. I just mean, I mean, I, I knew that I couldn't be Jhumpa Lahiri on the page in English. I mean, I, I'm not. I mean, also, it's a different kind of a book. It's about, well, you read it. It's it's about learning Italian. It's not a complex, it's not complex. Um, although it has, it gets more complex as her Italian gets more complex, more, it gets better. But, um, but it wasn't, so it wasn't like a difficult, in the sense of the sentences or the structure, but, um, but it was difficult because I didn't know what she would, you know, like take, if you, a word could have two or three different meanings. I mean, the same meaning in different shades of meaning. Um, and I, you know, I would choose what I thought was right. And then maybe she would, then when she read the, you know, she might change it, which was fine. I didn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, she was correcting me, but she just, you know, she maybe chose a different word, which makes sense because she's the writer and she knows what she wants, you know, which kind of nuance she wants to bring to a word. In a way, it was kind of a strange, you know, kind of stressful. <laughs> I think after that, she began, I think when she wrote, she wrote a novel in Italian and she translated that herself. I think her original idea was that she didn't want to re, she thought she would rewrite the book if she herself translated it and she didn't want to do that. So I didn't, I haven't read both versions of the novel, so I don't really know what she, what, how it came out in English and how it came out in Italian. We have come to the last couple of questions. Which of your uh, translated works um, gave you the greatest pleasure, and for what reason? I, I really, it's really a hard question to answer because I like 
every book, you learn something from every book you translate, even if you're not that fond of it. But almost every book, almost every book I've, I, at the same time, when you're translating a book, you become very fond of it. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, the Neapolitan novels were, that was an amazing thing to do. The Marina Jar, I really loved. Um, I'm translating an author now called Alba de Cespedes that I also really like. Um, I mean, Primo Levi, there's nothing, you know, that, that was an amazing thing to do, um, to work on Primo Levi. So I, I guess I really can't answer that question. <laughs> okay. Now, I gather that uh, you spend a lot of time on reading books too, other than the ones you translate. What are you currently reading? And Well, I just finished this very interesting book called um, The Expendable Man by a woman called Dorothy Hughes, which is a noir kind of um, reissued by New York Review Books. It's from 1963, and it's very good. If you like noir type of things, the writing is so good. It's really, um, it's really good. But I also recently read um, this huge series of books called The Cazalet Chronicles by Elizabeth Jane Howard from, I guess, the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, there's like five volumes, there's about five volumes about an English family in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And that's also really, that's really good. You have any favorite themes that you read often or any favorite writers? Yeah, I mean, I, I like 19th century novels. I read Trollope all the time. <laughs> okay. Any any specific writers that you read? or? Yeah, I mean, like Anthony Trollope. Um, who else? I don't know. Who else do I read over again? Um, I don't know. And lastly, do you have any suggestions for uh, individuals who aspire to pursue a career in translation? Well, the first thing is you need to have a day job <laughs> because you cannot make a living as a translator. <laughs> right, right, right. That's really the main thing. I mean, that's something going back to the question about, you know, if things have changed. I mean, yes, can, yes, the pay's gotten better, but it hasn't gotten better, that better, um, you know, compared to the time that you work. I think to, to really support yourself as a translator, you would have to scramble pretty hard. So you really, you really need to have a job that supports, that supports you. <laughs> I used to say that my job at the New Yorker supported my translation habit. <laughs> okay, okay. Craft-wise and uh, other than this? Well, I mean, I, again, I think that reading, I think reading is really important. Reading in English is really important. And, and I think lots of times people forget that the important thing is not so much, I mean, you have to know the language you're translating from, but you have to know the language you're translating into even better. Because that's what you're, I mean, you're really a writer in that language. So I think that's, um, that should be emphasized. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, ma'am. Thank you very much for your uh, patience and uh, giving us your time. It's been a real honor to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you.